September 11th, 2001. I was 13. I was in English class, and we got word from another classroom, hey, go turn your TV on. And y'all remember the old TVs, right? If you're in my era, it was the big gray clunky metal one that was in the corner of every TV, and if it ever dislodged, it would kill a person, right? Y'all remember that one? So we, we turned it on, and it's a special day because we're thinking, hey, we get to turn on the TV in class. And as we watched, smoke began to rise from the buildings, and the motion of the horrific scene began to roll over the room. And when they fell, lectures, quizzes, normalcy quickly fell away, and the motion was, what do we do now? Many students got checked out that day, and many teachers were in tears. All of us were in shock. I mean, remember back, and I know we have a lot of young people in the room, but for those that remember 20 years ago, it was just complete shock. I mean, normalcy of our everyday life was just interrupted. I myself, I was confused. I'd never been to New York, nor understood the significance of the trade towers. And I wasn't even aware of the evils that were out there in our world that would want to attack our nation. However, the confusion would soon move to anger. As our family gathered that night in the living room, the news report began to talk about how the first responders that were on the scene began to rush into these buildings to help save those that were in danger. And as you know, uh, my dad is a firefighter. And as I watched that, I began to think, hey, that could have been my dad. So immediately my confusion of the whole situation as I'm unpacking this as an emotional 13-year-old it began to move to a way that was just aggression and anger. The fear that reality was upon most Americans that day. As we thought about the other ideologies that were out there or the other religions that were out there or the other nations that were, that were out there that would oppose us, we began to demonize those and began to get aggressive or angry about the whole situation. But all of us were in shock and didn't really know how to respond, but I always look back at that situation and I think about the first responders who were on scene. They were, they were trained, they were equipped, and they were ready to respond, and they gave the greatest price. What was your reaction? What was your response? For those of y'all that were too young or not yet born, how would you respond? Like, what would you have done? Would it have been fear? Aggression, desperation. Y'all remember, if you're old enough, the, the nation began to just turn to God and the, the churches began to, to fill up with people and they began to just pray out because there was a desperate like sense of we got to do something. What can we do? If we can't do anything, let's go to God and perhaps God can help us. It was a remarkable time in the nation. I remember uh, seeing just... Sunday mornings just full and packed. And, and what was that? That was just a desperation to do something. As we think back to that tragic day, we remember those who lost their lives. And we honor those who responded to the crisis with heroic actions. 2,996 people died that day. Over 6,000 people were injured. And it's a day that we coin in our American language that we will never forget. So before we get too far into today's message and sermon, let, let's just pause one more time 
Let's just stop in prayer. And even though this was 20 years ago, we still are affected today by what happened on September 1st of 9-11 of 2001. Let's pray. God, our world has fallen. It's in crisis. Today we honor those who are willing to step in on people's worst days and respond with heroism. Even this morning as I was coming here, I saw blue lights and I saw red lights rushing to a scene, ready to act. While many were still sleeping, they were there. And we thank you for the blessing that we have in our nation for men and women who do this on a daily basis. We thank you for our police force, for our paramedics, our EMTs, our firefighters. In addition, we honor our doctors, our nurses, and others in the medical arena who are ready and willing to step in in the middle of chaos and crisis. Today, we stop and we remember. And God, as you continue to look at this nation, as we just read, would we be a nation that turns back to you, that looks to you, and in the moment of our crisis, you hear our prayers and you answer. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to bring the message to you to this morning. Today we're going to answer this big question, what is God's response to the world in crisis. Now, will we all agree that today's world is in, a, is in a continual state of crisis? Can I get some north-south around here? Like, can we all agree, like, we're here, we're, we're moving our heads, yes, we look around, we turn on the TV, we can understand that today's world is in the middle of crisis. From viruses, to hurricanes, to war, to riots, to sex trafficking, to social injustices, to corruption, to addiction, to depression, to anxiety, to suicide. Like, can we just stop and say, that's some heavy stuff. And it's something that we see and deal with on a daily basis. Like, it's messy in the world. It's in crisis. In the, and you have to ask the question. Like, I always just get to the point where I'm asking, like, what happened? If you're a Bible reader in here, you know that when we start at Genesis in chapter 1 and chapter 2, those are like the good old days. And we've only got two chapters. It's like, it's like Eden is perfect. And then in the third chapter, something happens. We just see crisis just take over. And you're, and you're looking at this and you're going like, what happened? And then you got to ask the question next. Like, so God creates all this. How does he respond to this crisis? So again, if you know your Bible and you understand it, like Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is, is, is a really, really cool picture of what heaven is going to be like. And then in chapter 3, when it all becomes distorted and perverted, it, it changes and it's all kind of based on our choice to rebel against God. And so if you know anything about rebellion, it, there's an authoritative figure and if you have a toddler in the room, like you understand that in their nature, rebellion looks pretty messy, right? And if you're a parent in here and you experience re rebellion on a daily basis, what's your response? Now, now all of us, let's just kind of like go somewhere together. 
let's just say we're all God here today. Okay? Let's say that we have all divine power. We're sovereign. I'm going to illustrate something for you. And I'm going to just kind of like put this out here. We all in the room would make terrible gods. Okay? We all in the room, when it comes down to it, if we had everything that comes with God, we would make terrible gods. Anybody ever see the movie Bruce Almighty? Y'all remember that? Like Jim Carrey, who's a funny guy, having a hard time at work, having a hard time in his life, down on his luck. He points his finger at God, says, you're the one to blame. God shows up, Morgan Freeman, this character, right? And if you ever had a voice for God, probably Morgan Freeman, right? It's just, it's just, so he steps in and he, what does he do? He gives him all power in his area to be God. How does it go? You don't even have to watch the movie, but you can consider just Jim Carrey being God and responding to situations in a way that just is selfish and all about him, and it gets him in a lot of trouble. So let's just stop for a little bit and say, you're God. Let's ask a question too. There's a difference between responding and reacting, is there not? Like when I react, it's different than responding. So teenagers in the room, let's start with you. You're God. Now parents, hold on. Teenagers, you have all power. You are divine. You are God. Let's put a scenario in your, in your case. You're walking up and down the halls. You're God. And you hear some other people in the room or in the hallways talking about how you ain't doing it right. Talking about how uh, you shouldn't be God. In fact, they go on, they build some digital content, they start talking behind your back. You're God, what do you do? Uh, I, I'll tell you exactly how you'll react to that situation. You'll say, boom, zap, fire from heaven, they gone. Right? That's exactly what you're doing. You're going to respond or react in this raw emotion. Parents, it's 3 a.m. in the morning, and your newborn is crying. How do you react? Some of you are like, I'm going to hit the holy hush. Right? You're just going to divinely mute them and go back to sleep. Right? That's how we react. And you're just, you're tired and you're exhausted and you fourth night in a row and you don't want that. And so what do you do? You hit the pause button. Business people, deal goes south. Your boss is a complete jerk. He's literally or she's literally the worst. And you have all power, all authority to do whatever you want to do. Boom. He gone, right? Like you're just going to go ahead and take care of the situation because you can do that. My social media people in the room, you got Instagram, you got Facebook. Follow me on this one. You post something and somebody responds negatively to that post, and the comment sections begin to, like, fill up. They're no longer someone that's hiding behind a keyboard because you're God. You see them. You know them. How do you react to that situation? Some of y'all be like, plagues, boils all over their face. That's how I'm reacting, right? We, can we all just agree that when we, as people, if we had the divine power and sovereignty of God, we would make terrible gods. Here's the point. The reason we would make terrible gods is because we're so consumed with the natural. What do I mean? 
When I react, I'm consumed with my emotions, and I rely on my natural instincts. The difference between us and God is that he is supernatural and has the ability to respond. And when God responds, he considers, note this, the outcome. So everybody say outcome. Okay, okay, okay. Wake up. Everybody say outcome. Okay, when God responds, he considers the outcome, and he does so with wisdom. So what's our response to today? Better yet, let's ask the big question, what is God's response to the world in crisis? If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to start at the beginning, literally Genesis. Genesis means the beginning. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you from Genesis, and I'm going to take you all the way to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And in my Bible, that's 908 pages. Okay? I'm going to do so in about 7 to 10-ish minutes. Okay? So hold on. And if you've never read the Bible in here before, what a treat. You're going to get the entire Old Testament all the way up to Jesus in the Cliff Notes version. I don't know if y'all still do that in school, but like when I had a book report due and the summer reading came around, what did I do? I didn't want to read the book. I found like the summary version. I go just snatch that sucker up and I would say, okay, yeah, I read the book. And then obviously I get exposed by the test because it wasn't enough. But today you're going to get the shortened, condensed version of the Old Testament leading all the way up to Jesus' burial or death, burial, and ascension. So the beginning, here we go. God creates the heaven and earth in perfect unity out of darkness and disorder. So there was nothing, and God responds by creating order and harmony. In addition, God creates man in his image to rule over the earth and to steward the resources to his glory. And it was awesome. If you've not read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's incredible. Like we're a part of this in-between where there's earth and there's heaven and God and his presence and divine creatures around and we have power and dominion over the earth and God says go be fruitful and multiply and it's all to my glory and I get to go with you. It's great. Third chapter in what happens, we just talked about this, the world is corrupted by sin. Unity is separated. Harmony is shattered. The new ruler of this world is no longer man. Who is it? It's Satan, this adversary of God who is against all of creation and rebels against it constantly and tempts and distorts and goes after God's image, i.e. man. That's three chapters in. And so what's God's response to all of this? He looks at Adam and Eve and he sees them in their sin, their shame, their nakedness, their attempt to provide like provision and covering for themselves. And he takes the first animal, he sacrifices it this animal, and he, he makes skin. He makes this garment. He makes this covering that goes over Adam and Eve. It's a beautiful picture. We don't start there. So, so man made a mistake. We're good now, right? No more crisis. Everything's fine. The rest of the Bible is going to be awesome. No. All right, so we make a mistake. Corruption of the world doesn't stop there. We see in just a few chapters the Lord regretted that he made man on earth. What happens? We see murder, idolatry, perversion sweep across the land. And in chapter 6, it says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. But notice this last verse. How does God respond? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And remember, this is God's response. Think about the outcome. You and I are here today because of one man's faithfulness to the Lord. That's incredible. So Noah built this ark. Takes him a long time. The whole time God is, is asking through Noah to be a prophet to the people, to say this is coming, to repent, to turn to the Lord. None do except for his family, and they're all pre- preserved. And the world is reset, and God responds to his world with a covenant. You all remember what that is? It's the rainbow, right? It's the sign of this covenant. And so what does God say and how does he respond? God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart, this is incredible, this is very eye-opening for us. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And God knows that. And God says, hey, we're not going to do this again. Even though I know your heart, even though I know that you're in rebellion, even though I know that you're in crisis, never again will I strike the Strike down every living creature that, uh, as I just did, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's amazing. That's a great response. So the world is reset. Crisis is averted. Everything is fine, right? Wrong. Corruption continues to spread after Noah. The evil within man's heart that God just referenced continually spurs up and stirs up more chaos and crisis. And God's response, Abram. God looks at Abram, even though he's, he's away from God and he doesn't really even know God. He's just this idol worshiper. And, and he looks at Abram and he says, through you I'm going to pour out my blessing. We're just saying about this. Through you I'm going to pour out my blessing so that you will be a blessing and reflection of God to the rest of the world. So big question, Why? So that God would be represented to the rest of the world through his blessing of one man and then ultimately his family. And so through his family we would see Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. All of these guys were conduits and their family, conduits of God's response, remember the outcome, to the world in crisis. Okay, so that's Genesis. We're going to speed things up, so hold on. Exodus to Joshua, remember this, slavery for hundreds of years, what's God's response? He takes an insecure, a man who is a murderer, a man who is away from, from the Lord, he's a pagan, and he leads him to lead out millions of people who are heirs of Abraham out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. So stop, big question. Why in the world would God do this? 400 years of slavery, People are away from him. They're angry at him. So why in the world would he do this? So that the world would see and know that his saving power and establish his, that he alone is worthy of worship, that he alone is sovereign and has the power. That's the outcome. In addition, he pours out his blessing on his people and grants them access into a promised land. He moves them by fighting their battles and winning them in miraculous ways. Do you all remember Jericho? Y'all remember the plan for that. Y'all remember how it all happened. God took care of every single one of the details 
and then brought down the walls and then won the battle for them. And that continued to happen and continued to happen. And the people of God were underneath the leadership of this guy, Joshua now, and they're moving to the promises of God. And it seems like things are getting better until, and I think this is so big, even after singing the song that we just sang, something happens. Joshua ends, and we go into Judges, and it says this, after Joshua died, all that generation were gathered to their fathers, meaning that they all died as well. And there arose a new generation after them that did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, come on, man. Like, we, we had some traction. We were going the right way. Things were looking good. How do you think God responds after another setback, after another crisis? God responds by sending judges. This is the book in your, in your Bible that says judges. He sends these judges, and their only role is to turn the hearts of the people back to God and bring salvation from the crisis that was facing them. So how does this work out? It went well for a little bit. It was like a temporary band-aid, but then the people fell away from God once again, once again. And here's what's crazy. Even the judges themselves become corrupted. Their own hearts become evil. Y'all remember Samson? Like he was strong, but was he a good guy? No, man. He was corrupted. He was tempted. He just fell into this idol worship, and it was, it was just bad. And he was a judge. And so we see this cycle continue. And so the people of God aren't following the will of God, and they say, hey, this isn't working. This isn't working. You know what we need? We need a king. We need a king that will fix everything. Everyone else has a king around us, so let's look around the other nations. They all got kings. So, so hello, we need a king. And God says back to them, hey, I'm king. Like, I'm, I'm the, the king. I'm the sovereign ruler. No, you don't need a king. But, but no, 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 God, we need a man king. And so God gives them Saul. The worst, right? But maybe we can get better after Saul. David, murderer, adulterer, liar. Okay, well, maybe his son will do better. Solomon had a thousand wives, a thousand women in his life. You think he had crisis? Guys, don't answer that. So maybe his sons will do better. Uh, no, the kingdom is broken, it's besieged and destroyed. How do you think God responds to this? Let's go back to Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That's who God is. Like, would you say at this point God is slow to anger? Like, yes. Like, we've made a crisis. We've made a, a total mess of this place. And, and we're allowing the adversary, this Satan-like figure, to, to destroy, to tempt us, to persuade us, and to pervert things. And we're going with it. And you know what? We like it because our heart are already just so bent towards evil. And we're going that way. And, and God responds with, hey, just come back to me. Come back to me. Like, I desire relationship. This is where we 
come all the way up to the New Testament. So the Old Testament is ending, and what do we learn? That man is terrible. Satan wants to do nothing but to steal, kill, and destroy the world that he has created. We live in this constant state of crisis. God continues to beg us to return with all of our hearts, but we don't. And so what does God do? For a time there, there was just this big pause, like, what, what's God doing? Like, is he present? Is he here? Like, what's going on? God responds to the world in crisis by sending his son. Now, this is, this is cool. You're going to have to look at it with me on the screens because this is so cool. Many of you know this verse, but I want you to think about it from a response, thinking about the outcome of what God was thinking. And again, he's the one that's divine. He's the one that's sovereign. He's not us. He's not reacting. He's responding. How does God respond? John 3.16. Look at this. For God so loved the world, he gave. This is a response. So a response is focused on the outcome. So, so what are we looking at? So the language here is saying that we're going to look for that outcome. So what's God up to? What is he going to do? So that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's one change to the present outcome that we found ourselves in. So God looks at you and says, I don't want you to perish. So I'm going to give. But there's a second thing as well. Not perish but have eternal life. That's the second change to the present outcome. So God says, I love you, I'm giving my son to you so that you, not, you will not perish, but you will also gain something out of this, that you will get eternal life. That's called grace. So mercy's not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting this gift that we definitely don't deserve, but we, we get it because God loves us. And if that doesn't move you, or wreck you, you need to go back and remember where we just came from. We're in this continual cycle of messiness. And God's response has always been out of wisdom, but more than that, out of love. It moved him so much to not wipe us out, because that would be just. The Bible says that we've all sinned, which means we've all rebelled against God. We've all acted out in war against God. We're in direct opposition. And if God is like me as a 13-year-old that sees something on the screen and has moved to anger, I would just want to wipe the opposition out. And even the conversations we'd hear around the, the lunch table, man, we just need to go over there and we just need to, to nuke them. Like who? We don't even know. I don't know, but just we're angry. Let's just, let's just go over there and take the, care of the situation. Right? God doesn't look at man that way. He doesn't react to man that way. He responds with wisdom, but out of love, and he says, yes, you are against me. Yes, you're in opposition to me. Yes, you're in rebellion against me. But Romans chapter 5, this is beautiful language. God responds out of love by saying this. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ would die for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God, again, power, sovereign, ruler, God demonstrates his own, the active reason, his own love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Okay, so, so God's up here, but he sends this guy down here. Well, that's whatever. Right? It's just somebody else. No, no, no. When you understand the relationship that God had with his son, and you see that he gave his son in order to save people who were in rebellion against him so that they might have a different outcome, that they might not perish, that they may receive a gift of eternal life. That is amazing. We even sing about that, like amazing grace. That's a sweet sound, like when we understand the Old Testament and how we got all the way to the New Testament. That is good news. That's why we call it the gospel. That while we were yet still sinners, Christ would give his life over for us so that we would not perish in order that we might have eternal life. The outcome of that is so radical, and you got to ask, why? And the only motivation that we can come back to is that God loves us. God loves us. That's his response. That the children of God are not left somewhere, that they're not left in rebellion, that they're not just punished, but they have an opportunity to receive a gift of grace through Jesus that came with the cost by his own life. Amazing. That's radical. So God, take this, and he doesn't react, he responds, and we consider the outcome, and so Christ dies, he's buried, and crisis wins, right? No. This is where it gets good. God responds. The Spirit of God resurrects Jesus, and then death, sin, and the grave are defeated. Like, come on. That's, that's awesome. Like, God doesn't just send his son and he dies, but then he looks at his son, raises his son through the Holy Spirit, and then grants you access to the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead so that you might have the keys of power over hell. Death and the enemy. This is beautiful. And so God does this, and the big question again that we have to land on is why? Like, why does God do this? But before we get too far into this, and before we answer the question and we kind of get to that point, I want I want to just I want to say something. If you're in here today, and you just heard the Old Testament all the way up to the New Testament, and you now see your need for grace. You now understand why Jesus had to come. Your response, now, not reaction. I'm not saying that you need to be emotional about all this and say yes and, like, just make a decision because you need to. Here's what you need to consider today. The response to the gospel that Jesus would come and save you is in two ways. It's either rebellion or rejection or it's an exception exception and your life has changed. So if you're in here today and you're like, man, I've never received the grace of God, you would know. You would absolutely know. Because how would you know? The Holy Spirit of God changes and transforms the people of God so that we are not bound anymore to the crisis of this world, to the drama of this world, and there's no hope for us. No, we are brought out into hope, into this marvelous light that we, we talk about and we sing about so that and here's the big question, we can respond again the way that Jesus responds. So this is where we're going to end today. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Acts chapter 1. I want you to see this. We're going to put it on the screens, but Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1.
This is so good. So what's God's response to a world in crisis? Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Then they gathered around him, him being Jesus, and they asked him, Hey, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know that the times or the dates of the Father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So translation, if you don't know this, they ask, God, when are you going to fix everything? Like, when is the crisis going to be done? Like, when are you going to make things right? And we all just have that longing. In fact, Romans even talks about this. Like, the, the earth itself is just groaning and longing and yearning for something better, to everything to be restored. And so what are they asking? The disciples look at Jesus and say, Jesus, is this it? Like, are we about to fix things? And you know what he says? He says, shh. Listen, don't worry about the things that you have no business worrying about. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to a room and begin to pray, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and then you will know how to respond to the world that's in crisis. And so here's what's next. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes in a cloud uh, right in front of their sight. And so they're just like standing there, and Jesus is ascending, and then he's gone. And the angels come to him and say, hey, what are you still doing here? Like, God just gave you a mission, a commission that you get to go with him. Why are you still sitting here? So they go back to this room. And as, the, as they're in this room, Acts chapter 2 talks about the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit falls on the, the, uh, the apostles, and they're in there in this room, and then all of a sudden they're empowered. And the next thing that happens is Peter goes outside, and he begins to see that there's people all across the world that are there for Pentecost, and he begins to speak to them. And what does he say? He shares the thing that I just shared to you. He talks about the Old Testament, and he leads it up to Jesus, and he gives them this point in Acts chapter uh, 2 that just kind of like climaxes right to the point of where he says, this Jesus that God raised up and that you are all witnesses of, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the, the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this for you yourselves, and you are seeing and hearing. And so they hear this, and he continues on. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when all the people, they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And you know what they say to Peter? They say to Peter, they say, brothers, what shall we do? Peter, what shall we do? So, so Peter just left the presence of Jesus, he, he goes into this room, he receives the power of the Holy Spirit, he walks outside, he sees the nations gathered, he walks them through the purpose and the mission of Jesus, why it is the gospel, and they respond to him, brothers, what do we do with this? Like Peter, what do we do? His response, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is that for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone who is far from the Lord, God will call to himself. And that many other words, uh, and with many other words, he bore witnesses and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation so that those who received this word were baptized and they were added to their number about 3,000 that day. That's awesome. But what does that mean? 
God in his wisdom creates the church. And Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's sitting on the throne next to him. Now, if you're thinking, and you're God, how do you, how do you solve this crisis problem in the world? Like, wouldn't you keep Jesus here? Like, Jesus is, he's, a, he's a resurrected from the grave. And, like, he's also, everybody can see him. And the, the apostles are like, hey, why are you going? Jesus, in his wisdom, says, hey, it's better for me to go so that I can send the Holy Spirit, this counselor. And when he comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. Translation. You. I. As the church, if you're in here today and you have received Christ and he is Lord of your life, like he's not just this idea or he's not just this Sunday meeting that you have to go to, but he is Lord of your life, you are the response to the world and crisis. How? Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and, and distributing them all to, uh, to those who had need. And day by day, attending the temple in prayer and breaking of bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the world's out there. It's crazy. It's chaotic. It's in crisis. God says, I'm going to send my son out of love for you. And he's died. He's buried. He's resurrected. And he comes back to his apostles and he says to you, I'm going up to be with the Father. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But he says, the job's not done. I need you to represent me. Do exactly what I did as Jesus, the Son of God, and replicate and multiply yourself into the ends of the earth. Why? Jesus prays this earlier in his life. So that heaven and earth would be connected once again like it was back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's the goal. That's the response. And so we don't look at the world around us and say, man, it's tough. It's awful. Can't be fixed. Can't do anything about it. I hate our nation. I hate our politics. I hate our government. I hate my job. I hate this person, right? That's not the response that we have. The response in Christ, the response in the Holy Spirit is that we are useful to that situation so that when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, when we're in prayer, when we are, are worshiping, when we're gathered and we're reading our Bible, it should always compel us to be motivated to go out and to be Christ to someone else. That's the response. So Christians in here, hear me. It doesn't mean that we're saved from crisis. The next chapter, we see that, that Peter and John, they're beaten, they're mocked, they're thrown into kind of like this Jewish prison. They're released, and you know what they're, they're told to do? Never talk about Jesus again. You know what they do? They go out praising. They're like, yeah. Yeah, we were like Christ in this. And they continue on worshiping and praising and spreading the gospel. So we're not apart from crisis. We're not apart from pain. We live through it, we're in it, and through it all, people should look at us and say, why? 
And the answer should always be Jesus. These were all just normal people. The only difference that they had in their lives, that they had spent time, and Scripture says they had been with Jesus. So as we close here today, two questions. One, have you received Christ? And when I say that, have you you received that grace, that good gift that comes from Jesus? That God would love you so much that he would give to the situation, the crisis that you're in, so that you may not perish, but you may have eternal life. That such a time as this, that God would see you, and while you're still yet in the middle of your sin, he says, listen, I'm here for you, I want to save you. Have you received that gift of grace? The second question, Christians in the room, man, how are we responding to the world that's in crisis? Are we responding in a natural sense? Are we acting in our emotions? Are we stirring up drama? Are we making things worse? Or do we have a supernatural nature that's within us that moves us? The Holy Spirit guides us and we encourage others. We see situations as opportunities to share God. We see opportunities to to move in compassion in order to see that God is visible and his glory is known and his power is seen and his love is on display. If we're doing that, here's what happens. Day by day, the number of those were added to the church of those who were being saved. Is this physical? Is this spiritual? The answer is yes. Day by day, opportunities were taken. Opportunities were seized in order that Jesus would be made Lord and King of their life.